what spiritual practice over time spiritual practice for a mother is right is um you know just this integrative practice of of surrender i mean it's just like that's what you have to learn to do with children <laughs> that's what i think we have to learn to do with life to love something as fully as you love something as someone as a mother but to have the vulnerability that comes with that You're listening to the Wisdom for Wellbeing podcast, the show that blends science and heart to bring you evidence-based tips and tricks for cultivating a healthy, wealthy, and meaningful life. Now, here's your host, therapist, yogi, and fellow full-life balancer, Dr. Caitlin Harkis. Hi there, welcome back to Wisdom for Wellbeing. I am delighted and honored to be dropping into your earbuds this week. We are talking about parenthood, perinatal, postnatal depression, anxiety, some of the very real challenges that come with it. And I think this is an important episode for anyone who has navigated these experiences, who may in future navigate these experiences, and for anyone who is a support person of someone who navigates these significant periods of transformation, of transition into something new. So Gina beautifully shares in this episode her firsthand, her lived experiences, particularly her challenge um, and learnings from her experience of postnatal depression, which was a very scary time, as she'll share in her life. She also shares a little bit about her offerings in terms of holding a spiritual space, cultivating a spiritual practice, which is something in a secular society, and particularly, you know, this podcast is really founded on providing evidence-informed psychological information. You know, it's not as often that we actually offer these lived experienced interviews, although there have been some. But I think it's really important to know that there is a vast body of evidence that supports spiritual practice as being a pillar in terms of psychological well-being, in terms of mental health. And it's actually something that comes into play in my Yoga Brain 101 course, where we talk about spirituality, even secular spirituality, which is a concept and is a practice, as being important for well-being. And then we use within the Yoga brain 101 framework you know discussion context around the self as a witness these different parts of ourselves that transcend person place time and Gina so beautifully discusses and shares her wisdom around the importance of ritual of you know these cycles of seasons and I definitely encourage you to reach out to her to learn more about her work if this is an area that you align with in her teachings so just to give you a little bit of a background Gina has been teaching yoga and meditation for 20 years she started practicing while she was living in New York in her early 20s and her life pivoted almost immediately towards practice she actually left for an ashram in Argentina and then returned to complete her first teacher training and she's been studying and practicing ever since she now lives in Ohio with her husband and two young children. The practice continues. And as you will no doubt hear in this interview, there have been 
such um, such times of practice, such depth and such pain was has supported her in her practice and which she so beautifully offers in this conversation for you to learn from. So without any further ado, here's Gina now. So Gina, welcome to Wisdom for Wellbeing. I am so delighted to get the chance to sit in space with you and, you know, to have this conversation. Would you mind just introducing yourself and letting us know who you are and the amazing work that you're sharing with, with us and with the world? Oh my goodness. Well, thank you for having me and for all of your kindness and warmth regarding my work. Um, I, I mean, I started off as a yoga teacher. I would say I'm a spiritual practice mentor. That's the main work that I do now. I've been a yoga teacher and meditation teacher for 20 years. And then it segued into my main work is a program that I call Corporeal Grace, which is a one-on-one program um, to sort of assist in somebody establishing their own personal practice space. And what that looks like, everything from sort of altar cultivation to what you actually do to what does it mean to have a spiritual practice, you know, um, and just sort of a way, you know, really what I wanted to assist with is not just the stuff that you do, which is, of course, important, like the breath work, the chanting, if there is that, the meditation, of course, the contemplative writing, but also, um, you know, it's just really a way of seeing and feeling and experiencing life. It's not so much that you get a different life. Sometimes you do. Sometimes there are broad you know, changes in the path of a life, of course. And sometimes it's the same life and you just have this kind of different access. Um, this is so important, isn't it? And like spirituality is something that we know is so vital for our well-being. Like it's really a pillar. And yet it's something that, you know, if we haven't um connected to a practice or a framework that's been offered to us might be something that we've kind of closed down and a lot of society has really moved to the secular approach. And yet we know that this is something that's really vital in terms of well-being. So, you know, there's like such, such a gap, I think, in terms of how we access or develop that. And I think Corporal Grace really, really fills that. I hope to. Yeah. (laughs) I I mean, I think that, you know, like the the, yeah, you use the word secularization of yoga and of most of us. I mean, if you have a religious practice, this could certainly be uh, an adjunct to it. I, I don't think it's sort of at odds with any particular experience of God. But um, but especially if you don't, or if you had sort of what I a lot of us have is a very watered down kind of non-centering version of some tepid religious upbringing that, that isn't what I'm bringing into my adult life. Um, there just isn't really a model for this, you know, and one of the things that religion does quite well, which again, is not what I teach is not a religion. There is a difference there in terms of spiritual practice, right? There's no, or, I'm not ordained and there isn't a, a governing body. And there's a lot of differences. Um, also, it's not, there's no dogma. Um, but one of the things that's very beautiful, I think about spiritual practice and even orthodoxy is the dailiness of it. You know, um, the, what you do in the morning, what you do at lunch, what you do, and also the, the cyclical nature of it, how really it unfolds you both in your day and also in the year. I mean, we have these things, obviously in this country, we have Thanksgiving, we have most people have Christmas or Hanukkah or Kwanzaa or something of that sense at the end of the year, which is also near solstice, winter solstice, but you know, more just sort of like, when, what do you do when somebody dies, for example? right? Or, and at birth. Um, so that's one of the things that religions do quite well. And that's one of the things that, you know, I felt the absence of, I'm not, I didn't, wasn't raised particularly religiously, but I'm not following in the lineage in which I was 
raised and, and my husband doesn't, he's an atheist. <laughs> I, I don't believe he's an atheist, but he would say he's an atheist. Um, I'm not atheist. I'm sort of agnostic or sort of something else, but so we don't have that to show our children. So what is it? What is this sort of, you know, this, this thing that, that opens us to, to the world beyond ourselves and, and supports us and nourishes us in a world that's scary potentially. Um, and just, you know, the, the meaningful tenor and tone of a life, like that happens just in friendships and all the, the secular things, but, you know, really having a way to land um, in, in ritual spaces, I think is what is lacking for so many people and the nourishment of that and the, um, the nourishment of that, I think, and the embrace of that, like, especially in a world that's changing quickly, often in ways that maybe are not what we would hope for, and certainly in terms of the planet. And <laughs> mm. well, it's uh, interesting that you mentioned the changing quickly, not what we would hope for. And you know, there's been like a lot of shifts in terms of community, cultural, cultural yeah. ritual. And you mentioned birth specifically there. And that's actually, I want to grab that because this is you know, really the topic of our conversation today is like this journey to motherhood and navigating it when, when it's difficult, when it's painful. And I, I think there's lots of elements going on and, and you'll be able to share your wisdom with us. But I think that this real change in how we support mothers and the ritual around, you know, community holding mothers is something that I'm anticipating might be coming into play as we, as we unfold this. Yeah. Yes, for sure. Um, midwifery is certainly, you know, the, the sort of culture of women holding women and not only women, of course, the, they're the male partners and other males that can be positive elements, but um, when they're male partners, which is of course not always. Um, but, and I think there's so many people doing beautiful work there and even conscious cesareans in the hospital and, you know, more, not enough. But yes, I, you know, I think that, I just think the atomized way that we're living in general, this sort of nuclear family structure is it's what I was raised in what I've done like we live in our own little house and you know but I don't you know and and it's challenging to really navigate what the alternatives are how do you actually live communally like what is that how do you share resources um especially in capitalism it doesn't really uh lend ourselves there so like even if we don't end up actually living communally with other people I think of course the sense of and and in many cultures still and in and in many communities within every culture there are people living multi-generationally which really is seems like a better plan like it just you know it's better for the children as but it makes sense in terms of distribution of labor and effort and resource but also just like for people to have for children to have roots you know yeah um to know and a humble sort of sense of that root and you know it was definitely sort of my I, I grew up in California very middle class not at all upper middle class and certainly not but but went to New York for college and I just remember that was sort of seen as like, you know, it was, it was fancy or something. Um, but what went with that was the sense of like going away was an indication of some kind of success, you know? Yeah. Isn't it that is interesting? It was cool to see a whole new thing, but it was really just like, what about the sort of, you know, the in and down? Yeah. Um, and I think it's interesting yeah. that you mentioned how beneficial multi-generational um, living is yeah. for, for everyone involved. And I think, you know, I, I feel passionately about a lot of things, but there's a lot of ageism that happens in our society as well. And I think, you know, we, 
often are so disconnected from, you know, the wisdom of, of our elders, of the older persons that are in our communities and may not see them because of, you know, the, the ways that we're living and the quick paceness of it all. And I think that that's something that is also combated here, but at the other end of the spectrum, the little people, little people coming into this world, you know, (laughs) and, and the fact that we are living in this really, um, as you put it, like atomized way, we are living really insularly and it's not even just that the family is living in this really insular way it really comes down to the birthing parent often to be raising this little person in isolation and you know you are so insightful Gina in terms of your ability to reflect and connect and I also understand that you had a really difficult um, perinatal experience so Yeah. Do you want to, do you want to talk me through just to get a bit of an overview as to, as to what your experience was like from conception onwards in terms of the challenges and maybe looking back, connecting the dots where, where there might've been room for intervention, for support so that other people going through this experience can number one, perhaps feel validated in, in it because it's, you know, often closed doors, but also maybe go, okay, this is where I need to reach out. Yeah. I mean, I think that one thing I will say up front is the, the shame component, you know, like I, you know, the, the sense of aloneness. So I was 36 when I was almost 37 when I had my first child. I have been practicing yoga and meditation and healing deep work and teaching since I was 22, four. So I was years and years into feeling like I'd done some very deep work into my own well-being, and also had been seen as a teacher to many people for quite some time. And so that confrontation with this sort of, you know, the imposter syndrome component of just being like you, what, I mean, that was a big piece, I think. I mean, truth be told, the biggest pieces was biochemical and hormonal. Um, and so when people have a real biochemical or hormonal depression or a hormonal postnatal depression or anxiety, um, you know, that's just a thing that I would say you get medicated promptly. That's what I did. I went on Zoloft. And thank um, you for saying that because this is, again, you know, there's, there's a lot of taboo <laughs> here, isn't there? You know, for, number one, we have this it's expectation of how it's we really should. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And, you know, even before that, before I had my son, I wasn't on medication, but I was, you know, I probably could have been honestly, <laughs> but wasn't because, um, I was a wellness person and, and there's nothing mm-hmm. wrong with that. But I honestly believe now that the inclusion of, um, you know, antidepressant medication or anti-anxiety is holistic. It is part of what's being offered. I don't think it's adequate. And the good news is, is it won't do the full work for you anyway. You know, they're the sort of pockets of your storytelling and your self-loathing and all the things that need to be healed are there anyway. So congratulations. But it does for someone who's really in need of it, um, bring you to sort of a zero. It brings the ground up enough to, first of all, just to live and function and care for this child or yourself, um, but also to a place from which you might begin a healing journey. When the, when the suffering is sort of too loud, um, I don't believe that's a starting point. I think that can be a, a you know, a, whatever you call it, the, the crisis can be a beginning point. It can certainly be the thing that turns you to, but, um, you know, I think the expectation that we should be with supplementation, with meditation, with breath work, fine, is a huge part of the suffering that's continuing for people who are making a sincere effort. I mean, the thousands of hours that I've meditated, if you 
talk to anybody who's done very intelligent studies on it, they would say this person should not have depression. <laughs> you know, I've done all the unwinding and, and I did and I do. Um, I mean, I'm not, it's very, very different. How, it, how I live with it is very different now. But when I was postpartum, uh, 10 days, my son's pediatrician actually was like to my husband, she looks like a ghost. You need to, she needs to go on medication soon. It was a very severe case, which was very awful, but in some ways, um, you know, I know people have had much milder cases that sort of like drip, but it's just uh, erode kind of slowly over time. And that, and, and it's easier to just go, this is the baby blues or whatever, but there was no mistaking it for me. So in some ways, um, everybody kind of, you know, my mother came and moved in with us that I had a lot, I actually had a lot of support. Um, I was lucky for that. Well, and, the thank, and thank you for accepting support. it too, right? Like, I think this is the thing that, you know, when you, yeah. you know, were at this place where you visibly looked like a ghost, you would have accepted the support. It sounds like there wasn't any pride, you know, you went, okay, this is, this is what yeah. I need. And everyone around terrified. you knew it. Yeah. I was terrified. I mean, it was so, I mean, I'll spare you the story, but I had a very quick courtship with my now husband. <laughs> I got pregnant you know, fast, but it was, it was really welcome. We were both very, very thrilled. I had to, I ended up moving, um, during my pregnancy. We didn't live in the same place. We lived, uh, 75 miles apart, but I gave up my, left my life in Los Angeles where I'd been working and teaching for 10 years at that time. So that was a big difference, partly. Um, a huge thing, isn't it? Yeah. I'm imagining that played a big component. Um, but you know, I, so I had, I I had, uh, I had, it was a much wanted pregnancy and I was just very scared of things going wrong the whole time. I definitely had an anxious pregnancy. So that I think is something for people to look out for. Like if you are having an anxious pregnancy, um, you know, the chances of postpartum are very, are much higher. Not, not for everybody. Sometimes the postpartum hormones are super buoyant for people and they, you get this great boost, but just to sort of, you know, maybe like if you're having quite an anxious time, have a therapist and maybe even a psychiatrist that you could have a conversation with in the case that you need, because it was actually really hard for me to get in time a psychiatrist. And that isn't true always, but I was living in a small town then. And it just was hard. It wasn't even a financial issue. It was just like getting someone to take me at that. It was not that easy. Um, so, you know, if that had been in place earlier, would have been less stressful, but I had a, so I had a depressive and more anxious than depressive pregnancy. And then I had a difficult labor, but not complicated. I had, you know, a labor that a lot of women sort of dream of. I had an unmedicated midwifery birth in a tub. Um, uh, he was great. My son, he was healthy and there was never a moment where they said it wasn't, it was very uh, protracted and long because I wasn't really surrendering to the contract. It took a long time for me to really begin to dilate. Um, and I had back labor. So there was a lot of pain that was mm. quite intense, but, um, I mean, pain, it's pretty, pain. <laughs> some people Definitely. don't think it's that painful. I thought it was pretty gnarly, but incredible. But, um, my sister was like, that was intense and awesome. You know, I was like, okay, cool. Wonderful. I found it very, you know, my second time easier than first, but it's pretty, I mean, that's bananas. It feels like you're going to die physically. <laughs> yeah. I think there's a reason they call it transition. <laughs> it feels like it's that like twilight zone where you're like, I'm ready for um, it. Yeah. So, I mean, it was so funny. So my best friend who I'll, I'll get to this more in a second, but was one of the people who saved my life postpartum, but she and I, in that time, once I was sort of 
coming back to life a little bit in the weeks after she and I would joke all the time about like, we're going to put this in the book. We're going to put this in the book, just the book that we haven't written and hopefully will, but of the things that they don't tell you, the things that they don't tell you that nobody, I don't think is intentionally is shrouding, you know, the main shroud is our own, well, capitalism and patriarchy, but also our own shame and sharing these things, you know, but also just some things, not some things people were, willing, you just don't hear about it for some reason. But, um, so this is why, you know, I can tell your listeners or anyone, I'm 100% willing to be on the phone with any single person who ever needs, I mean, if thousands of people came calling me, that would, I wouldn't be able to do that. But um, so far, it's only been one at a time and only a few, but I've had friends of friends refer me to people who it was evident to them were pitting, pitting into a very deep and work, you know, they had a psychiatrist also, I wouldn't be alone in that. But I was the first on the phone being like, listen, you you can be okay you can love being a mother and you can be okay like I promise and then you know they generally think you didn't experience it as badly as they are because they'll never feel the way I'm saying I now feel about my children and that I chose to have a second one you know yeah um which I definitely had some trauma to work through in my second pregnancy um about the first you know about the fear of the recurrence of the first so yeah, it was pretty much like Sebastian, my son was born and um, by, you know, it was great. He was great. We were home. At first, it seemed like nursing was going quite well, which was not actually true, but that wasn't the stressor yet. Um, and then within 30 hours, I was convulsing on a bed with panic and a big drop in hormones. I forget exactly what, but it was right at this point where that would happen. My sister and three, I'd been married for three months, my sweet husband, um, we got married when I was six and a half months pregnant. Um, but my sister was there and my husband and they, you know, they called the midwives because they thought it was a physical event and it really wasn't. I mean, it was a very physical event, but it was a panic event. Um, mm. And it kind of went from there. I mean, I knew I was a candidate for postpartum depression because I'd had depression historically in my life, you know, for a long time. And also because I had such an anxious pregnancy, but I just didn't know it would be like that. Um, and what that was, was really, I mean, I can talk about it as much as you want, but it was, it was, um, it felt like demonic and horrific. Well, it felt like, uh, yeah, go, sorry to cut you, you off. Ahead. I was no, just, you go ahead. Well, I think you, you know, you mentioned earlier that you're on the phone to someone and you were telling them, you know, you'll love your child and you will get through this because I think that this is a really interesting one when we talk about shame. And I'm wondering if in the way that that was phrased yes. different, there were these moments where you did not feel connected to your child. And that's something that's really hard to share. Um, Very hard to share, you know? So would you talk us through I what mean, that was I like had, navigating? Yeah. I, so that's interesting. I mean, I, 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 um, I did have periods of that. I was thinking of that specifically this one woman I that was her main fear. Um, okay. Mine, and I did have periods of that where nursing had just weeks in, nursing was so, there were a lot of, I got mastitis right away. He had a tongue tie. Mm. I actually got some pretty bad advice from some lactation people, but, um, you know, I was starting to, I'd had a sense of who I was going to be as a mother, and that was starting to change in every single way, including, you know, not being a full, being able to fully provide milk for my son. I was throwing up every time I tried to nurse. I got a breast infection. I, I mean, it was, it was so, I had a midwife who said she'd been doing this for 37 years and she'd never seen anything like it. So, and I was, I didn't, was, I didn't have psychosis. I wasn't deluded. I just, and I didn't want to hurt the baby. Um, but honestly, I can, I can see how some women could, mm-hmm. like, what, because I mean, I wanted to hurt myself instead, which is a difference, but, um, 
I mean, not really. I wasn't actually going to, but it, it, it just felt so That's how your mind was going. Hey, like your mind was going, well, this is awful. How do I get out of this? I mean, it was very severe. It was like, you feel like you can't sustain that for another moment. Yeah. You know, for another moment, which doesn't make any sense because obviously you can probably sustain most things for my biggest thing was more, um, like a chasm of inadequacy. I would cry over him changing his diaper, the baby and and, and he'd look at me in his like tiny, you know, filmy newborn way. And I thought he was wishing he had a better mother, which almost sounds like a joke because obviously newborns don't have those kinds of thoughts, but I, I was not kidding. It was How like, painful. I was really in agony over yeah. this sense of inadequacy. Yeah. Which I think a lot of moms have in a much milder sense, this feeling of wanting to be so good at something that you're so new at. And if you're like somebody who's, you know, type A, which I'm not, but I'm firstborn and like sort of, if you want to be good at things, you just work harder. <laughs> yeah. You just, you know, you just, if you think you should be good at something before you've tried it, there's a limiting way of being in the world. But I had some of that. I think a lot of people do. I can see it in my child actually. Um, and so is that, but just amplify, I mean, I don't quite know. I felt like, you know, there's no medical or psychological um, verification for this or assessment of this in any way, but I felt like I sort of got caught in the dark place that I entered actually in my labor. Yeah. Um, my depression started my labor anxious throughout the pregnancy, but I pitted into a deep, uh, really pretty cataclysmic place in my labor of, I don't want to do this anymore, which is understandable. A lot of people <laughs> have that feeling <laughs> Very understandable. at least for moments, but, um, I was terrified that he was going to die, that baby. And I, but I also didn't want to have him. I just wanted to go back to where I was still pregnant, where I didn't have to confront not the pain of the labor, but the pain of the territory of motherhood that I thought I was going to fail at. So going into this experience, you know, there's some warning signs you noted, like with hindsight, you know, being really anxious yeah. and, and a labor that was really prolonged, the intensity of it. And just like the sense, I don't want to do this anymore that didn't shift. And, you know, yeah. that there's, um, you know, hormonal components, you know, when your hormones drop, there was a panic attack that there's um, neurological kind of components as well and biological. And we know you kind of identified that, you know, your history would suggest that you're at risk. So there's like these yeah. real biophysiological experiences that you had. And it's in the context of being someone who's meditated umpteen hours, you know, on paper, everything should be hunky dory and the shame that comes with that. Yeah. And then, you know, kind of navigating this experience with all the tools you mentioned earlier, you know, that you felt like, um, the antidepressants just kind of gave you the place to start that there's still so much work to do. And this is something I talk with people about a lot that, you know, it's really hard to engage in work if you don't have a starting platform, you know, if you can't yeah. integrate memories, if you can't like actively engage and show up in your life, how can you do the work? How could we expect that, that antidepressants can provide a platform at this point in time that it's not, um, yes. you know, it's not all just sitting and chanting and moving. There's other things that we need to take care of as well. So at 10 days, you know, you were identified, you know, very clearly that you needed help. You were a ghost. When did you get in to see the psychiatrist? When did you start medication and how did the healing start? Like what could someone who's going, oh my gosh, like I'm struggling or kind of in future keeping an eye out for, what would they expect in terms of trajectory and 
options time, for Like healing. actually how long did it take? Um, how long? And then what were the practical steps, Gina? Um, I, I got put on medication. It took a long time to get a psychiatrist, but I got um, a general practitioner to get to prescribe me medicine. Great. Um, and then a, a like 10 day emergency dose because I was seen by them and they were like, so that's something for people to know, like get an emergency appointment. If things are struggling, there's yeah. no point in waiting, like get in and see a general practitioner as a starting point, like talk to a, talk to a medical yeah. practitioner. That was to make helpful. Sure. Yeah. yeah. And then, you know, getting, so getting my mother there was very yeah. helpful if that's the possibility of a human type. Yeah. We also did pay for, um, you know, we didn't really have much money to spare, but we did use all the money we had to get a postpartum doula. That was very helpful. So she, in addition to holding the baby, sometimes also made some food for us and cleaned up and, you know, all the things that are challenging for, I mean, I would recommend a postpartum doula to anyone who could afford such a thing without, even if you're having the time of your life postpartum, because it's just, it's remarkable how, I mean, as you know, as people who've had these, certainly the first time, especially how the days go, um, um, and being on the phone with a friend, I had a friend who was an, I mean, she's an angel. Like uh, I don't quite know how to thank her ever. I mean, I have so many times, but she just was available 24 seven. And if she, she was working a bunch sometimes and she would, if she was like, I'm going to get on a flight for three hours. Um, just so you know, if you call me, I won't be able to answer them, but I'll hear, you know, like she just kept me in touch and, and just promised me that things were going to be okay. Amazing. Um, that was pretty amazing. So that's the, you know, it's, it's not that easy for everyone to do that. A lot of, I had a lot of friends who not for any lack of care, just were not helpful or quite not helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're just kind of buck up like this is time the baby needs you like, you know, and, or just didn't know what to say at all, which is quite understandable. Um, what was it about the way that she supported you that was so helpful? So for anyone listening who, you know, might be that person on the phone with someone, are there any, you know, markers as to what they could, what they might be able to do to be more supportive? I mean, she was, she's smart and wasn't, you know, she had, if the, if the person in support doesn't yet have your partner, if there is one, you know, in this case, my sister and mother, like you need the information of the people. She was not in, she was in New York and I was in Southern California. So if you're not physically around that person, you need to have the information right away for the people who are, because my husband is somebody who wouldn't have, he sort of is so uh, patient and kind of has a a remarkably, um, just a natural sort of sense of things being okay. I think he would have, he would have waited excessively long to um, intervene if I, if it hadn't been caught, I mean, I wasn't going to wait. I knew what was happening, but, um, you know, some people are like, this is, it's confusing because we have a lot of information about the baby blues and what's okay. And I think that, you know, it's, so it's not that everybody who's having a downtime is having a postpartum depression that needs medication. Certainly. Um, it's just sort of knowing when, cause people kept saying that it's new, like it's, you know, it's only been a week or whatever, like maybe you're going to, and I just was like, you know, I, I know that, that it's not. So, um, so yeah, so my friend made sure that she had the contact of my little web of people and was in touch with them when needed. And then I would say, honestly, and this is part, a lot of what I've done for the women that I've supported who I had never met. I mean, it's pretty amazing. Um, uh, is you just say, it's going to be okay. Yeah. So the reassurance, it sounds so basic, but you say, 
it's going to be okay. You are like, you're going to find a way through this. I couldn't find a way through it. I, 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 I was so mired in the stickiness of so much hormonal, uh, you know, whatever dissonance and also um, the sense of, of inadequacy and self-loathing that I couldn't see a way through it. I just, and also, you know, that especially when it's your first baby, you don't realize that the newborn phase is so temporary. <laughs> you yeah. sort of think like, oh, this is what motherhood's like. And you're like, Ugh. I mean, I think it's <laughs> yeah. beautiful. I love, I would like do zero to one now five more times if I could. Um, but I actually love it now, but I, but when it's new, you're just like, you have no idea that it's so temporary. And so I think even that is like, you know, just really helpful. And, um, and people gave me supportive tips. Like this is, you know, try this. Yeah. Like actually help with finding a lactation person or doing this technique or, Oh, I did this when the baby was crying. I bounced on this or I, you know, this like carrier was really helpful. I had my baby on me all the time. I mean, I had my baby on me all the time. Yeah. Um, I mean, I would have also told myself, uh, and somebody new to, to give up, to, to not be so harsh with your um, stringency around wanting to nurse fully when it's not working. I mean, to give a shot, I think you, it doesn't come naturally for everybody. For many people for whom it doesn't come naturally, you can still nurse fully with some support. So definitely try if, yeah. you, if that's something that's of, of value to you. But, um, and of course, not every parent has breasts and not every person, parent is, not every person who delivers is lactating. So I'm just talking to people who yeah. are, um, uh, the, I, I killed myself over it I, and supplemented and then pumped every three hours, 24 hours a day for six months. It was a terrible, it's the worst idea I've ever heard. It's just the worst. <laughs> well, yeah. Um, when you talk about sleep then, too, right? Like that's, that's a lot. <laughs> well, that's what my psychiatrist. So then, yeah, we sleep trained at three months actually, which I never thought I was going to do because, or four months, but because the, psychi the psychiatrist that I did end up getting said, listen, beside, you know, you need this medication and you need sleep. Mm -hmm. yeah. Your baby needs you to sleep and you need sleep. Like that's, that's an imperative medicine. Now that's a very personal choice. Not a lot of people, not everyone wants to do that, but I did with the support of a sense of like, okay, yeah, you have to, you know, it's just, you just have to sort of get a sense of, um, you know, letting the stories or the images of how you thought it was going to be fall away as they do. Yeah. Sometimes it'll be, it'll be more extraordinary than you could have ever imagined. But, um, you know, the sense of control is so tight and we're, and it's, it's worrying, you know, like the first weeks of a new, especially I think for brand new first time parents, like it's scary. You're sort of like, you don't know, <laughs> just like, you don't know, you know, you really don't know. And so it feels, everything feels that the vigilance that's going on in the nervous system is so constant. And so if you're, if you have a sensitivity, I mean, everybody's sensitive to that, but if you have a genetic or old, whatever the, you know, the basis physiologically for that to really throw you, um, it's just something that's, that's a, you know, anxiety, I think postpartum anxiety is as much a thing as, and probably, I, I don't know the statistics, but more common, I think for most people I've spoken to yeah. than postpartum depression, even. Um, but then we know like, so. there's a vulnerability, yeah. like if we're really, really anxious of experienced clinical levels of anxiety, we're much more likely to experience a depressive episode. So if we notice that that stuff is yeah. coming on strongly, and I can certainly empathize with the nervous system going wild when a baby cries or something like it's, it's yeah. really um, intense. So it's worth noting that, okay, well, this is something I need to be mindful of. And as you highlighted, like if people need support, like it's a matter of letting them know that it's 
it's, we're there, that we're, it's going to be okay. And really highlighting the fact that everything does change because when we're in the thick of it, it's really hard to see how it's going to shift practical suggestions. It sounds like also welcome, probably done in a manner where it's like, you could try this, not this will work or you must do this, (laughs) but, but that these things are really helpful. So Gina, just as we like move, you know, into, to kind of tying everything together and wrapping things up, you know, where, where could people connect with you further, you know, particularly if they want to kind of get a sense as to how they might find anchors in this time period or the other, you know, offerings that you have more specifically around spirituality and connection, because motherhood could also be this time where, you know, there's so much happening. We can, you know, ground in. I mean, I will say this just as a general. So I think that every mother is born with the child. Um, And I think that so that that was true for me as well but there was in a lot of cases there's a pretty I think we all have you know you just with every metaphoric birth comes death like they're usually you're sort of letting something go so we're all all mothers are sort of letting go of a you know of some previous identities and of different their previous body and maybe their work and you're letting go of something in the birthplace of not only that child being born a different you know, you just enter this sort of into a different territory on the planet, uh, within the planet of your heart, certainly. And I, you know, that's what was happening to me too. I just think that the sort of death experience for me, the le- what needed to be let go of was so radical. I mean, I don't have much explanation for why it would happen to me then other than the biochemical parts. Um, but I think for everybody really let, getting into that sort of the birth of yourself and that that, that comes with murkiness we all like the idea of birth and transformation but we don't like the fact that in general it has to come with some sludgy sort of like it doesn't look as pretty as we thought it's not just the like thing you know and so I think that and 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 there are many women who experience you know variations of um, personal identity loss in the sort of replacement of yourself as just mother now in this way where you know really the 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 what spiritual practice over time spiritual practice for a mother is right is um you know just this integrative practice of of surrender i mean it's just like that's what you have to learn to do with children <laughs> that's what i think we have to learn to do with life to love something as fully as you love something as someone as a mother but to have the vulnerability that comes with that right um but the, the trying to sustain and trying to protect and trying to preserve which really isn't possible what i mean that's your role but as much as it's your it's your role to just to let go and there's a constant letting go a little by little they're getting sort of farther from our physical place if you carry the baby you know um and my kids are still little i'm still kind of in charge of their lives a lot <laughs> but less you know um and and so i think that this motherhood is a is is the is metaphorically what we're doing in life all the time which is learning to love and to know that we don't know how it's going to go that's amazing so love and surrender and yeah such a beautiful messaging so listeners um so it's gina gina oh, zimmerman sorry. you know your website, I never website. The actual what's your website <laughs> okay the plug um, just, just quickly yeah, just like, gina I know zimmerman yeah. yoga.com gina, gina zimmerman yoga.com Zimmer, and, and, and my instagram is Gina Zimmerman yoga. Um, and you know, and I'm I'll not put like, it all in the show notes listeners yeah. too. So if you're kind of listening, if your mind's foggy, it will be in the show notes as well. Um, yeah, I'm not, 
you know, I'm not a licensed practitioner. I'm not a therapist. So I'm not, I, I don't work with people postpartum in any official way other than as a spiritual practitioner and as a friend and as a human being. So the, the, the idea of being in support, whether by email or on the phone with somebody who's in need perinatally, you know, so anywhere in the journey is something I would do, you know, with, for no cost. Um, it's just something that I would do for the rest of my life. It's such an amazing gift and like what, what a hardness to it. So Gina, thank you so much. And thank you for, thank you for sharing your journey with us so openly and transparently, because I think this is what destigmatizes the shame. And this is what's going to support people to reach out when they, you know, maybe are starting to notice some of these warming warning signs, maybe when they've got to the ghost point, you know, hopefully we can, we can kind of put some things in place before it gets to that point. Yeah. Yeah. I hope that you found that interview with Gina as deeply feeling and insightful as as I did. Her real humanness and vulnerability, I feel, offers such a connection to all of us at different stages. You know, whether it is in a parenthood journey or navigating other significant life events, transformations, challenges, just the pain that can come with really truly being human. And I think Gina's ability to reflect on her experience, to so openly and vulnerably share it, is really shame busting and stigma busting because we suddenly, you know, in a lot of ways gain insight that people who, you know, in air quotes, have it all together to people who are in wellness communities, who are deep in their spiritual journeys, that when they struggle, it highlights the humanness. And I think the authenticity in sharing these experiences is certainly helpful. I really appreciate Gina sharing how she really truly believes that having you know, pharmacological support is part of holistic health, that there are no bounds to what we call holistic health, that, you know, drinking green juice and sitting and meditating is not going to be the be all and end all, that getting psychological support, getting psychiatric support, these things allow us to not just stay alive, but to ultimately through time thrive when we are met with difficult challenges. And if we can stay open to our experience, then we can seek help help along the way. So please (laughs) check in with yourself, check in with where you're at on your journey, check in with your loved ones, your friends, your family members, reach out for support as you need it. And I would encourage you, if you are not already, join in the Yoga Nerds mailing list, which you can sign up for at drcaitlin.com. And I can let you know when other resources, interviews, episodes, and little freebies I have along the way are available, as well as flagging with you when you can access the Yoga Brain 101 course, which does include an element of spiritual understanding, frameworking around our sense of self there. And of course, please reach out to Gina and her wonderful works if a deep dive into a spiritual practice is something that is calling you right now. Even just taking the opportunity to learn more about what that means, knowing that spiritual well-being is a pillar of quality of life, of emotional health and well-being. All right. I will let you jump back into your week. I'll jump back out of your earbuds and I so look forward to connecting soon. Subscribe and share this episode with anyone you think would benefit. Bye for now.
Thanks for joining us this week on the Wisdom for Wellbeing podcast. Please visit drcaitlin.com to connect, find show notes, other episodes, and to subscribe. While you're at it, if you find value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating or perhaps simply tell a friend about the show. Wisdom for Wellbeing is not a substitute for professional, individualized mental health treatment. If you are in crisis, please contact 000, your local emergency number if you are outside of Australia, or attend your local hospital ED.